Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 191 with the Founder Fifth Birthday highlights of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I'm coming to you live from hometown, homegrown Melbourne, Australia. And uh, if you're new to the Founder Podcast, we interview some of the greatest entrepreneurs of our generation to really find out what it takes to build and grow a successful business. And in this episode... This is week two of our uh, best of three-part series where basically we've clipped and edited the most popular episodes of the podcast we've released over the past couple of years, found the gems from every single episode. They'll really give you an edge when you're thinking about certain things for your business, your brand, and how you're operating. And this week, we have some epic conversations lined up for you around investing, sales, and scaling your business. And in this week's episode, you're going to learn from people like the Master of Sales, Ben Shahib, and Matthew Kimberley, and also from the Shark Tank man himself, Robert Herjavac, on investing and scaling your business. And then lastly, you're going to hear from Mr. Emith himself, Michael Gerber, on setting your business up to scale. And these episodes, like, you know, some of these pieces that the people share, this is some of my favorite stuff that's taught me personally so much and it's had a huge influence on how I run Founder today because the thing is, right, guys, I'm here in the trenches with you too. Like I'm trying to find out myself what it takes to build and grow a successful business and everything I'm learning, I'm just putting it into action, putting it into Founder. So 
you know, I, I, I really hope that everything we're doing for you guys, we're really giving that grassroots feel of, of the brand and, and we're just learning too. So that's uh, pretty much what's happening, guys. And in regards to uh, what's happening in my world, I go to the US uh, this week. Um, so I'm doing a bit of a backlog of recording, but basically I'm going to a, a conference around sales funnels. It's the ClickFunnels conference. I'm really excited that I'm going to New York for a little bit, which is going to be awesome. I'm going to catch up with Zach, who uh, is heading up our course production and educational production of content. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a great little trip going for one of my good friends, Smitty. And uh, yeah, look forward to uh, learn heaps, bringing Dave along as well. He uh, heads up uh, product and marketing. So yeah, it's going to be an awesome trip. I'm really looking forward to it. So that's it from me, guys. Uh, if you are enjoying these episodes, please do take the time to leave us a review. It helps us more than you can imagine. And uh, now let's just uh, jump into this first up piece of golden nuggets is with Ben Shaheeb. This is probably one of our most dangerous podcast episodes that we're going to release uh, because this guy, you know, he really knows his stuff. And I just know that if you use this stuff, it can be absolutely game-changing and explode your business. So here's part of my conversation with Ben. I'm curious, this might be an interesting um, discovery session, but, you know, you're very, very good at sales, Ben. So, you know, when you started out, what is, can you, can you work us through the process of, how you've built up your business because I know you're doing some amazing things not only for your clients but your own business and your sales master and that's why I really really wanted to get you to come on and share with our audience you know the sales process and how you take some like a prospect or even find a prospect and take them into you know make them a paid customer make a person a paid customer Um, so can you take us through you know how you've you've built that business up in the past year Sure, absolutely. And um, um, also your process, your sales process. Absolutely. Well, for, first off, I what I did focus on is what I was great at, and then I found ways to generate revenue in the things I'm great at, which is sales and teaching sales. But then I took all of the things that I'm not great at, which is marketing, building, you know, like you've referred some great people to me on the technology side, but anything that I'm not great at, I didn't spend any time on. I just doubled down on my strengths. And so I really focused on what I'm strong at. So like if someone's strong at marketing, but they're not strong at designing things, I'd say hire someone to design and go market your products, right? If you're strong at sales, but you're not strong at the back end of your CRM, go hire someone to do the CRM and focus on talking to prospective clients. So that's what I did. And, you know, my partner, she she's strong at you know, consumer analysis and trend analysis. And that's what she focused on. And she didn't focus on anything else. Right. So I think you have to focus on what you're strong at. That's going to generate your money. And then you have to start investing in the areas that you're not strong, you know, and that, and I think that's key. And a lot of people get scared and say, Hey, you know, it's like the chicken or the egg, right? The cart yeah. or the horse, you know, what, what's, what's first. If you focus on your strengths, you can make money on your strengths. And so what what I've always taught people is the sales process in which I'll talk about this right now is you know, you've got to make a sales process natural in you and authentically you. You, know, you. you have to understand that you're taking your potential client through a journey, through your conversation. 
right? And when you're leading them through this journey, you know, it's, it's important to understand that it requires a lot of listening and asking questions. And a lot of times, Nathan, people go so fast in a given their pitch that they don't know enough about their client to even know if what they offer is right for their client. And that's what I really focus on is really teaching others how to find this. I think when you first start to, you know, when you're first getting into this whole sales stuff is, is you feel uh, like a scammer, you feel it's scary to sell, you feel guilty. What advice do you have to people that are just getting started or, or you know, they're starting their business and, and you know, they need, to, they need to go out and go out and get sales? Because like, that's something that I love what Mark Cuban says. He's like, sales cures all. And it really does. You know, like if your business is struggling, you need to get out there and hustle and start selling. Uh, but but how do you bridge that gap between, you know, inside of you not wanting to be this kind of person that's really salesy? You don't want to be one of those slimy, salesy kind of car salesman kind of guys. Like, what what advice do you have for people to, to shy people away, to not be afraid of selling? Well, I, I think first you need to have a lot of conviction in what you have to offer. You have to be convinced through and through that what you have, whether it's a product or service that you have to offer, that it's going to help your client and that without a doubt that it's, they're going to lose out if they don't hire you or do business with you because what you have to offer when you ask all the right questions, again, this is not about pitching. This is making sure that you uncover the needs of your client and you find out that what you have to offer fits that need and narrows that gap that they have. Only then when you're thoroughly convinced is really not selling. It's about asking your clients the right questions to uncover if there is truly a need or a gap in their life, where they are compared to the one they want to be, where they want to be, and that you can fulfill that gap. If you cannot fulfill that gap, it's okay to let them know you can't and refer them to someone that can. And what I have found is when you have that kind of mindset, mm. you generate more sales. Mm, that's really interesting. So, dude, take me through this sales process this framework that you have you showed me um this diagram last month it was killer i loved it and you started taking me through it i was like dude let's save this for the podcast we'll we'll put it in the show notes take me through it and can we use can people use this framework for not only just getting on the phone but also if they want to do webinars to sell you know their set like a SaaS product or or anything at all yes sales presentation, whatever, in person, on the phone, webinar, you can, this applies to all, right? This applies to all. The difference is how you would go about, you know, if you're not talking to someone you're doing on a webinar, you need to answer the questions in the webinar, right? Yep. But the framework itself answers to all. And I, I think what's key in the framework is to, to know that it's an eight step. It's called the S8 process. Yep. And I'll, I'll walk, you through each step in the process. Okay. But like I said before, it's taking a customer through a journey. And, and also, Nathan, I'll, I'll send you something that you can use that anyone can download um, to walk them through the fr- process. So after they listen to your podcast, if they want to run with it and go on it on their own, they can do something and they can start generating revenue from it. Awesome. Because I just know if they learn how to do this, they'll make more money. That's what it's all about, man. You know, yep. more customers, growing your business. Absolutely. So, you know, what's important is, one, you have to be great at listening and great at asking questions because your clients' needs and issues, they vary so much, right? And what our job is to 
do is to determine the root issue and address it appropriately for each client. To, so they can make a decision for himself or herself, is this a good fit? So what I'm going to do is take you through the process. There's a lot of open probes, which I'll talk about throughout the process. And open probes are basically how to get your customer to engage, how to get them to speak more. And I'll, I'll share what those are throughout this process. So the first step in the process is called share. Share is about listening to stories and building rapport. Because when you're first talking to a client, Nathan, it's about connecting with them. It's about building trust, making a friend, showing an interest, making them laugh, finding a common ground. And, you know, how you do that, it's, it's really getting them to open up so they speak more freely and they can build a connection. You know, it's asking them, telling them about what, you, what they currently do, asking them, you know, tell me about what you currently do. You know, what else should I know about what you currently do? And when you get one word answers, it's when you go in, hey, do you mind elaborating a little bit more on this? Can you share more with me about what you currently do? It's, it's getting them to open up. What happens is we've got to get our customers to feel comfortable with talking with us. And a lot of times what we do is we go in there pitching. And our goal in the sales process is to really, when you have your offer, is to determine the person you're talking to if they qualify to see your offer. Because not everyone does. Because you can't help everyone. That's the reason why there's so many different offers out there, right? Yeah. So it's getting them to open up, you know, look, Establish share. Establish rapport. Establish rapport. Listen to their stories. Build that rapport. And when you get short-worded answers, it's, you know, getting them to elaborate. Tell me more about that. That open probe. Getting them to speak up a little bit more. The second step in the process, Nathan, is suitability. Suitability is about confirming a basic need and seeing if that client qualifies for your offering. You know what your offering is. This is not the time to share your offering with your client. This is the time to understand their needs and to see if they qualify for your offering. So it's making sure there's a good fit between your product and your customer's needs, understanding their needs and what they're trying to accomplish. You know, asking basic questions like, what is your current challenge and what goal are you trying to reach? You know, how long you've been trying to reach this goal or how long have you been trying to find a solution to fix the challenge you're going through? Understanding what avenues they've already explored. You know, it's these kind of questions that really start to give you the ammunition to see if it's going to be a good fit. And I recommend when you're asking these type of questions, you take a lot of notes because you really want to understand your client's needs. You know, asking them what do they think they'd be using a solution for, you know, using the developmental probes. When you get one-word answers, Nathan, this is where it's key. Every time you get a one-word answer, it's about, can you share a little bit more with me? Do you mind elaborating a little bit? Tell me more about that. You want to get them to open up. You want them to share more. Because what's interesting is the more you get your customer to share, about their problem, they more they're selling themselves than they need a solution. Mm. That's key. Yeah. So if you think about it, when you're talking to someone about Instagram and what's their challenges of getting out there and why are they looking to using it, what happens if you just be quiet and let them speak, they start selling themselves why they want and need a solution. It's amazing. Is that called future pacing? Yeah, I, I guess that's the technical term for it. And it's future pacing. But to me, what, what I found interesting is I rarely have to ask a client if they want to do business with me. 
they usually tell me by the time I get through the eight steps, they usually asking me, how can they get started with me? Because I take such an interest in that client and what they need that it makes a big day. And that's what I train everyone on too. And that's what happens is, you know, like one client I'm working with right now, it's an $8 million company. We're already pacing to 25 million. And we just started working together two months ago. Yeah. Wow. All right, let's. I want. I really want to delve in on on the work that you're doing with one of your clients because I, I think that would be really interesting. But let's keep going through this process, man. Okay. We're not finished so, yet. So, so the second <laughs> step was suitability. Yes. The third step is called significance. Significance is when you really uncover the problem and discuss the implications of an action. This is where you start to understand their motivation and what it's costing them for not finding a solution. See, price is only an issue, Nathan, in the absence of value. And between these next two steps is where all the value is built in your conversation. It's having them recognize how important it is in their life and the pain of doing nothing. How important it is to find that solution in the pain of doing nothing. Help them realize where they are and if they don't make a change, what are the consequences of that inaction? So some of the questions I usually ask people is, you know, what's motivating you to pursue this solution? You know, why is it important to you? What will change if you move forward? See, this is what's interesting. When you ask a person, what will change if you find this solution? If a solution existed that was able to generate more leads for you, what would that do for your business? This is where your customer starts to build value. They might tell you, well, I'll bring me more customers. Okay, how many more customers do you think? If you had a solution right now that um, would bring you, like if I was in marketing, right, and I generated leads, I was a Facebook marketer. Yeah. And I said, if, if, you, if there was a solution that existed that would allow you to get more leads through Facebook, what do you think it would do for your business? This is where your customer will start building value in a solution. And then if they say, well, bring me more customers, well, great. Well, how much is that customer worth to you? Then they're going to give you a dollar amount. Okay, so how many more customers do you think it will bring you if you had this solution? Get very specific of what it's going to do to their business once they have this solution. The more specific you can get and narrow it down to a dollar amount, this is the true value of your offering. Mm, I love that because then it becomes a no-brainer. It does because usually what happens is they give you a value. Um, like one person might say, oh, each one of my customers is worth $1,000. If I had this solution in Facebook, I'd bring in 10 more customers a month. Well, that's $10,000. And if I am a Facebook marketer and I only charge $2,000 a month, well, it's free to hire me, right? Because a person's going to make $8,000 profit on that investment. They know that in their head, as long as you get them to verbalize it, it's true. If you start verbalizing it and you tell them the value of it, that's suspect. So you got to get your customer to verbalize it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because if you say it, then that, that means they're being sold to. And people don't like to be sold to, right? No, they don't. They, they love to be sold on their own ideas, but they don't like to be sold. Mm. So they're happy to sell themselves. They would love to convince. They love convincing themselves why they want something and why they need something. But they don't want to be convinced by un, anyone else. Because every time we purchase something, don't we justify it? Yeah. We always do, regardless of the purchase, regardless of uh, uh, you're buying shoes, a watch, a car, a toy, it really a widget. It really doesn't matter. You always justify it. So the, the greatest salespeople 
really get the person to sell themselves on the idea of the reasons why they need this solution, this widget, this gadget, whatever it is. So I think in significance, it's also to understand what's kept them from pursuing this before, pursuing a solution, because you need to understand what have been the hurdles in their life. And you need to know what's kept them from moving forward, because if that thing still exists, you have to overcome it. But they'll let you know what this kept them. And then so what happens if you do nothing? You know, what happens if you do nothing? That answer that that person gives you scares them. If they say, well, I won't be able to accomplish my goals. And then you have to follow with, how does that make you feel? Because you got to remember, Nathan, people make decisions, buying decisions, because they're emotional decisions, right? So you're trying to get movement, motion. And I said, you cannot get any customer to move towards a direction until you put an E in front of that word motion, which is emotion. emotion. Mm. If you don't have your customer emotionally engaged, understanding how they feel, what are they thinking, they will not move forward. Or if they do, they have buyer's remorse. Now you notice we've went through share, suitability, and significance, and I still haven't shared what I do. No. So that's, that's the importance of these steps. So the next step after significance is stretch. It's how, helping them imagine the possibilities, getting them to think big, imagine the future with this solution, create a vision, the value of making change, move them forward towards their goals. So this is where you can say, well, what would your life look like once you learn X or have Y or just help them build a vision? And you've got to make it visceral. You've got to get them to give you the details. You know, great. If they say I'd make an extra $10,000 more a month if I've learned this or had this, or they said it really improved my business or it improved my team's performance, you got to say, okay, great. And once you get that dollar value, it's not enough to know what it's going to be per month. You need to know what they're going to use it for because it's not the money. It's the use. What does that allow them to do? Now you're making it real for them because now they're putting, they've already started spending the money in their head. They're saying, well, I'll be able to reinvest in my business or I'll be able to hire a person or give a person a raise. Then you're able to get deeper in it and asking questions like, tell me, how does that make you feel? Why is that important to you? You get them to really buy into this idea that the solution has provided this value in their life. You know, what, it's asking questions like what opportunities will open up for you once you've mastered this skill or you've, your team has mastered the ability to do X, whatever it is that you're selling. You know, what opportunities would open up? How do you believe your life or your career will be different once you complete X? Or once that solution is involved in your life or in your business, you know, once you find that right solution, how will this improve your income per month, per year? It really doesn't matter because what you need to do is once you understand this and they've put a dollar amount to it, you can ask them what they're going to do with it. But what's important is not take it to the month. Take that monthly, make it a year and ask the question. So you plan on being business for the next five years, 10 years, 20 years. How long you plan on being business? They're always going to give you a time that's longer than five years usually, right? Yeah. So if they say 10 years, the value of your product or your offering or your service is basically that monthly amount times 12 times 10 years. What happens is they start selling themselves on why they need that solution. They're selling themselves this whole time 
on why a solution will really change their life. But it's still not time to pitch. You go from stretch now. So we've covered share, suitability, significance. Then we hit stretch. Now we go to select. Select is where you learn their options and why they want you. This is where you get them to verbalize that they've looked at other options, but they see you as the only option now. This is when you get them to sell themselves on working with you. This is, you know, how long you've been thinking about finding a solution. You know, what did you like about the people you're working with before? Who else did you look at? What didn't you like? This is where you start building the ammunition. So when you give them your solution, you have all the things that are important to them and none of the things that aren't. You know, what's kept you from pursuing this or kept you from completing this, you know, finding the right solution, you know, before now. And then it's okay to tell them, look, you can get these types of services other places. Why are you interested in working with me? I ask that a lot. And, <laughs> and what happens is they start selling, well, you really listen to Ben. Or... <laughs> this, is, this is crazy, man. I'm, I'm laughing because this, this is so powerful. Please keep going. This is, this is crazy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because once they once what happens by asking them, why are you interested in working with me? They sell themselves on it. Mm. I don't have to sell them. I don't have to tell them why I am. They're going to start telling you why you're so great for them. You've listened to them. Well, I've looked at your website or, you know, I've heard a lot about you. They start selling themselves. Then they start identifying the things in other places that did not suit their needs. You got to say, tell me more about that. How did that make you feel? You really need to uncover these things. All right. So if you look at it, it's assigning a value to your program before you even ask for the investment at the end. So as an example, if I talked to a person and they said, well, you know what, if I had a solution that will really improve my sales skills, because that's what I do, right? They said, if I had that solution, I'd increase my revenue $10,000 per month, right? And I said, okay, so how much is that a year? I make them do the math. I never do the math for them. I literally say, go get your calculator and I wait. Because if I'm not there physically, I'm on the phone, I have them do the math. Do you say, well, do this on a webinar too? On a webinar too. What I would do is I'll ask the questions live, you know, and then I'll, I'll take the average of all the totals that people are giving me and just say, hey, can we all settle at this number? And they said, yes, of course. But what I'm trying to get them to do is create a value. And if I can take it from $10,000 a month to $120,000 a year, I ask, I say, you know what, Nathan, I got a funny math question for you. If I was standing in front of you right now with $120,000 cash, would you give me 30000 for me to give you one hundred and twenty? Of course. Of course. So what did I just find out? Their willingness to invest. Now, because that already got them in the headspace that they need to invest to get because they just talked about a solution to give them. Now they're thinking in their mind, it's already seated. This can be $30,000. But then I ask them another funny question. I said, okay, you know what? Let's say you only had two hours to come up with the $30,000. How would you do it? This is where people start telling them, I'd, uh, I'd, I'll put on a line of credit, I'd write a check for it, take savings, take a loan out, put it on my credit card. You start finding resources they have. Sometimes I have a client says, well, you know what, I just can't do it. So I said, you'd let, you'd let $120,000 walk out the door because you just couldn't figure it out? And they go, no, 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 I'd figure it out and this is how I'd figure it out. It doesn't matter what they say. I just want them to think. Mm. I want them to communicate to me what they could do. Now, my offering, I always use a ridiculous amount, usually double or triple what my offering is. Yes, why? Why? Because what I want to do is when I give an offer, 
they they already were seated that the the offer could be more, but I come in at twenty thousand dollars and I just use a fifty thousand dollar example or thirty thousand dollar example. They thought they got a discount, and it makes the, there's uh, less apprehension to invest and get started now. And what this also does for you as you're learning and you're building your business, it starts giving you what your true value is. So for me, as an example, when I first started, working with me was $3,000. Then working with me just started increasing to five, six, seven, ten, twenty, and it just continued to increase because yes. I started seeing the value I was bringing to people. Okay, next up, guys, we're going to have one of my personal favorites with Robert Herjavac. And I got so much out of this interview. We've had some really incredible feedback from our community on this one, too. And this conversation with him, we talked everything around pitching, selling, and what he looks for when he's investing. And if you're not familiar with Robert, he's uh, one of the sharks on Shark Tank America. Incredible guy. And he's really, really humble. I actually spoke to him while he was caught up in LA traffic. So we, we had a great conversation. Really humble guy. So I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Back then when you sold that business, who who got a good deal? Was it uh, like how deals go down today in Shark Tank? Or <laughs> Yeah, I think we um, – I mean, I look at back on it and, I, you know, I had this long talk with people I know like Mark Cuban and other people. And I always think, when is the right time to sell your business? When the money changes your life. And uh, back then, you know, we sold the business for $32 million, I think. And I didn't have any money. I mean, I was putting everything I made into growing the business. And, you know, we were always rich on paper, but poor in cash, like many entrepreneurs when they start out. So getting $32 million in cash was going to alter my life, my kids' lives forever. And, you know, it was really hard. In fact, I always treated it like my baby and I didn't want to sell it. But I'm really glad I did because it got me kind of to where we are today. I always think there's three reasons to sell your business. One is if the money you're getting will change your life, if you think the market you're in has peaked, and if you don't want to do it anymore. And I wanted to do it. I thought the market had legs, but the money was so extraordinary back then, it really altered things for us. And so we sold it. Mm. Interesting. And and when you... You did a previous interview and you said that uh, one thing that you wish you had have done in the earlier days was was dreamed bigger. What exactly did you mean by that and, and why do you think this is important? Well, you know, I think it's kind of like we're talking about we're now a global company. We compete in the U.S. We bought a company in the U.K. We compete there. I never imagined that. You know, I never imagined that we could do that. We didn't have that confidence to be able to scale to that level. And I think the beginning of any great journey is you kind of have to have an idea where you're going. And I grew up in Canada. All my businesses were in Canada. And so our vision was to be the biggest and the best company in Canada. And now my vision is to be the biggest and the best player in my space in the world. And I think, why can't I do that? And it's just a level of confidence. I, I wish I would have thought on a larger scale, it would have given me more growth and more incentive and a greater vision to start. 
I'm curious, you, you've you um, often told a story about how um, your mum, and this is a good segue into your book, your new book, uh, You Don't Have to Be a Shark, it just come out. Um, you want, uh, I've heard you talk about that uh, your mum was sold a vacuum cleaner uh, for $500 when you were a kid, and that was seven weeks' salary. Why, why do you refer to that story? I think it was really prolific for me because... It taught me so many things about sales, good and bad, and really understanding the language of business. I mean, some salesmen took advantage of my mom because we didn't know any better. And I think it really hit home for me. And it was really traumatic because we couldn't afford it. My dad was trying to save money for, you know, buying a house. And here we are, seven-week salary. And so vacuum cleaner, I mean, it was crazy. And it really upset them. But for me, it was really a epiphany. If you don't understand the language of business, if you don't know how things work, and if you can't make a certain amount of money in North America, you're going to take advantage of. And to me, it's being taken advantage of. And I realized I better go out and make something of myself and make a certain amount of money to take care of the people that I love. I don't. Who wants to be taken advantage of? And yeah, look, um, I'm, I'm sure there's many stories uh, like this where sales guys, they just, yeah, they're just sharks. So could you tell us about your new book, um, You Don't Have to Be a Shark? Yeah, it's, I talked to, uh, did you ever read a book called How to Swim with the Sharks and Survive? No, I haven't. It was written by a guy named Harvey McKay. So he, you know, I read his book when I was a young kid. And uh, Larry King put me in touch with him yesterday because I always wanted to meet him. And it's interesting, you know, the purpose of the book is you don't have to be a shark, but you have to learn how to swim with them. And it really comes down to sales. You've got to learn sales. Sales is everything in life. If you can't sell yourself, you're going to have a hard time getting ahead. Because in seven years of doing Shark Tank, that's the one thing we've really learned is people are deathly afraid of sales. They're afraid of rejection. They, they just think they can't do it. They think they have to be that vacuum cleaner salesman guy, you know, pushy or sleazy or lying or whatever the case might be. And, you know, I wrote the book just so anybody can learn sales and you don't have to be that in order to do sales mm, because i think um generally when when you when you're selling sometimes you can or if you the thought of selling to people people don't want to be sold to so it can feel kind of like like a negative feeling or you know something that's holding you back um how did you get over that fear of selling just by doing it wrong i think that everything i've learned i've done wrong learned from it and did better the next time. For me, the hardest thing about sales was rejection because people in sales say no a lot to you. And you go through this phase where you think, oh my gosh, it's me. But you realize sometimes the product just doesn't fit or it's not the right opportunity. And I learned that the best way to do sales is to try to qualify and not waste your time. What are some practical tips for for being a good salesperson, not being a shark? I think the first thing is you've got to listen more than you talk. That's the big one. People think you have to 
people don't want to be sold today. They want to be educated. The other one is, I, before I teach you to sell, I have to teach you who to sell to. Qualifying. Always try to qualify who the right prospect is. The third one is motivation. You got to understand what motivates the other side in anything. When people come on our show, they always tell us how good their business is. They tell us how they're going to make money, how the business is going to make money. But then they don't tell us, the investors, how we're going to make money. You always got to understand what the other side wants out of it. And then, you know, the, the final point I would say is make it simple. People get bombarded with information all day long. They don't want big, long, complex stories. They want it to be simple. Have your value proposition down to a few key critical words that you can say in 30 seconds or a minute. So when it comes to, you said you, you invest in, in the person more than, than the product or the service or the idea. What sort of qualities do that, does that person usually have? That, is there any rules that you stand by when you're investing in, in that person? You know, I think that the big thing that I always look for is the ability of that person to sell themselves. I mean, I think if you can't sell me on you, you're going to have a hard time selling a product or anything else. And so it's funny because we usually make up our mind on somebody in the first couple of minutes. And everything that happens after that either supports that opinion that we've already prejudiced ourselves against or something extraordinary has to happen for us to change our mind. And so it's, you know, how people come out, how they speak, the cadence of their voice, how confident they are. And then it all kind of leads from there. You know, someone's really confident and, you know, humble and they don't know their numbers. We're going to help them. Somebody comes out and they're cocky, arrogant, and they don't know their numbers. We hate them. And we see that on the show all the time. Yeah. Wow. And I'm curious, the ones that are struggling, why is that? I would say if I had to pick a commonality, it's adaptability. Great business founders have the ability to see the wall before you hit it, and they adjust. Like I always look at one of my best investments is a company called Tipfields. If we were to stay just doing their original product and their only product was inappropriate, ugly Christmas sweaters. If that's all we still did today, mm. we would be in trouble. But they expanded. Now we make, you know, ugly college sweaters and we make Fourth of July t shirts and they make ski onesies and stuff like that. And I think that that's what founders do. You know, great founders have the ability to zig and zag. They're adaptable. So is, is that what you're kind of doing with, with uh, the Herjavac group right now? Um, you mentioned to me around how you're taking the brand global. You've just set up an office in uh, Sydney. Are you always, how many years are you thinking ahead? Do you set goals and work your way backwards? I've, I've been told uh, many multimillionaires they, and billionaires, they think like years and years and years ahead and they actually trace their step backwards. Is that how it works for you? Not really. I mean, I think we have a long-term vision, but in tech, long-term is three years. Somebody once asked me, they said, what's your five-year plan? And I was like, oh my God, I can't even, I can't even fathom that. So we have a three-year vision, but we try to be focused on execution on a quarterly basis. I think it's important to know where you're going, 
but in tech, it's it can be difficult. So we we have a short term vision and a long term goal. Mm, I see. And how do you breed that kind of dogged determination and culture in your company? Because that's not easy. Yeah, it's funny. It took us a long time to figure out what we're good at and what we're not good at. And I think that's one of the things that we are really good at is we know what works for us. We like to grow. We're very competitive. And we've always been like that. And we try to find people who like to compete. In our industry, if you don't like to compete, you're going to have a really hard time. And so what we've learned over the years is we tend to do well when we hire people for their character as opposed to their experience. When we hire people for their experience and they don't fit in with us, culture is the hardest thing to hire for. And now we hire people for culture. So we have a lot of former athletes. We have uh, some former Olympians. Well, you're never a former Olympian, as I'm told. You're always an Olympian. We have Olympians on our team, that kind of stuff. Yeah, okay, I see. And um, I'm curious around leadership. This is something that I'm actually going through now in my company um, because we're starting to hire a lot of staff and it's difficult. And uh, I know many of our audience are going through this transition now from founder to CEO. I'm curious, what advice would you have for people that are scaling up, are hiring, uh, are a first-time CEO? What what lessons would you uh, give? In terms of growing quickly? Yeah, in terms of growing quickly and managing and leading people, because it's, it's very difficult, uh, especially when you're a first-time CEO. You know, I think it's really hard, but you've got to look at in terms of creating a, a greater team. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, when they're small, get very frustrated with that and think, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard entrepreneurs say that the best business is a business without employees or, you know, the best employee they have is themselves or that kind of stuff. And I've never really thought of that. I've struggled with hiring people, but I've always seen it as an integral part of growing and getting scale. And as you grow your business, your greatest quality has to become the ability to build the people around you and get everybody pointed in the same direction. Mm, I see. And, and, and how do you get people to do their best work? Well, first of all, you have to hire people that want to do their best work. And you have to have a common goal and you have to lead people. I think people today want to be led as opposed to managed. So I think you're just, you've got to be constantly giving them the direction, motivating them, and you've got to be the, the top salesperson in your, in your company. People want to be led with vision and, and passion and purpose. Nobody wants to go to work and say, oh, it's just a job. Even though it may be just a job, they don't want to feel that way. Mm, yeah, I see. Uh, when it comes to Shark Tank and, and pitching, do you have uh, just some, you know, a couple of pointers and advice for people that are going out and pitching their product or service? couple of things. One is never forget the first thing you're selling is yourself. Make it simple. Don't overcomplicate it. Have a value proposition that's easy to explain, but understand the motivation of the people that you're pitching to. You know, we went to Silicon Valley last week because mm. uh, we're thinking about maybe bringing in some investors, that kind of stuff. 
And one of the things we did is we always try to understand what the exit plan is and what the motivation is for the other side. Mm, yeah, what's in it for them? How can they get a return? Yeah, because everybody's got to be on the same page. The mistake that people make is they try to bring an investor in, and that investor's goal is not equal to theirs. They may want to grow the business, keep it for five years, and somebody just wants to come in for a quick return. Awesome. Well, look, two more questions. One, do you believe that you always need to raise capital to build a successful business? No, I don't believe that at all, but I think you have to have access to cash when the business needs it. That might be a line of credit, that might be your credit cards, but cash is the lifeblood of your business. So if you're not going to raise capital, you better have a really great relationship with your bank in terms of a line of credit. And I think the only time you should bring an investor in is to help you grow faster. You know, as a as an owner and a founder of a small business, your biggest payback is equity. Try to hang on to it as much as you can for as long as you can. Mm, that's great advice. And also, um, when it comes to, you know, growing a company, running it, when do you know when to give up and when do you know when to keep going? Do you ever give up? Absolutely, you should give up when you're not growing. I mean, I think... In our world, it's really easy. You either grow or you die. We don't have a choice. So if we don't grow, we're moving backwards and we're going out of business is how we look at it. There was a great saying by Andy Grove, the guy who ran Intel, only the paranoid survive. And I'm not sure that applies just to technology. I think it applies to everything. And we're very paranoid. But, you know, sometimes when the business, if your market's dying and people are eating away your market share, and you don't want to do it anymore, there's nothing wrong with giving up and starting again. But I've never done that. I've always been able to adjust to changing markets. So this next highlight for you guys, you're in for an absolute treat. This is with Michael Gerber, and he's the author of a book that's very, very well-renowned called The E-Myth. So many people know this book. This one really shook things up. And in this interview, we talked about systems and the importance of them and how you can use them to scale and grow your business, but also get your business ready to be sold, which, you know, I think something that's really, really important for people that, you know, we're all here to build something that adds value to people, right? You know, we can all establish and agree on that. But at the end of the day, you know, for a lot of people, their business and I guess the real uh, form of liquidity will take place when you sell your business. And uh, this is something I think a lot of people need to think about when, even when you're in the early days of your business. So a lot of people thank Michael for, you know, setting up their business in a structured way because it's all about, you know, building a business that's a well-oiled value generating machine where you have processes and systems in place, which allow you to, your business to run like clockwork. So without further ado, now let's jump in to hear what Michael says around systems and scaling. The first question I have then is, is you're saying that things haven't changed. Um, the, the common, what is the common problem that you tend to see in, in, in any type of business and, and how do you solve it? Well, the common problem we discovered years ago and that we keep on rediscovering day after day after day after day is that the misnomer um, based upon this idea of entrepreneurship is that, in fact, 
very, very, very few people I meet are actually entrepreneurs. What I've come to call instead, they're technicians suffering from an entrepreneurial seizure, meaning they went out to create a business, we'll call it, though I have another name for it. They've gone out to create their own business, but they don't do it like an entrepreneur does. They do it like a technician does. They create a job for themselves, and they create a job for themselves to do what they know how to do. But as they do that, becoming a what we'll call a company of one, they leave out everything else that, in fact, they need to learn how to do. So our job has been discovering what's missing in this picture. And almost every one of the hundreds of thousands of companies we've walked into, Nathan, just think about that, hundreds of thousands of companies, high tech, low tech, no tech, makes absolutely no difference. Hundreds of thousands of countries and 100 companies in 145 countries. So it doesn't vary from country to country. It doesn't vary from industry to industry. It doesn't vary from product to product or service to service. It doesn't vary from person to person, from culture to culture, even though obviously there are differences. What's most intriguing is what the similarities are. Because the moment you can see that systemically from that 10,000 foot level, let's say, you suddenly open up a door that's just magical. And it's magical because it suddenly demonstrates to you the universality of opportunity, the universality of problems, the universality of business, as opposed to the highly specific nature of each and everything we do in each and every way that we do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if what I'm saying is true, and it's absolutely true, we've proven it with over 100,000 small business clients since I started the company in 1977. If that's true, and it is true, well, then what? It means that all of this Sturm and Drang, all of this stuff that everybody's doing is somehow off the point. And if it's off the point, I'm essentially meaning that there's something fundamental that every single individual owner of every single company of one, whether it be one person or five or nine, really doesn't make much difference. Every single one of them can suddenly discover something they'd never seen before. It oughtn't to be as difficult as it obviously is. Otherwise, there wouldn't be such an enormously tragic failure rate among small businesses worldwide. Yeah. Now, I'm really excited too. Um can you share a little bit more on what it takes to build uh, a fast growth enterprise? Absolutely. Now, hear this. You just said something which is a bit different than I said. You said to build a fast growth enterprise. Great companies were not grown fast. 
Now, understand, relatively speaking, it could have seemed to be fast, but FedEx wasn't fast. Amazon wasn't fast. Took place over a significant amount of time. Now, obviously, what took place over that significant amount of time was significant, meaning Amazon is significant. FedEx is significant. So it wasn't fast. It was very, very, very specific. So let me share with you the steps that we have defined in Beyond the Evening, the evolution of an enterprise from a company of one to a company of 1,000. The first stage of that process is that platform that I was speaking about earlier. And that platform really is built around the four very critical personalities of a true entrepreneur. Nobody's ever really talked about the entrepreneur the way I'm going to describe it to you. But they're very clearly four distinct personalities. You might say necessary skills to be an entrepreneur. The entrepreneur, first of all, is a dreamer. Second, a thinker. Third, a storyteller. And fourth, a leader. Now understand, I'm not using these words rhetorically, meaning this is not just shtick, meaning everybody's got to have a model. This isn't, the point is that a dreamer has a dream, a thinker has a vision, a storyteller has a purpose, and a leader has a mission. So the steps that I just described, the very specific component parts of a true entrepreneurial personality are fundamental to growing a true enterprise. Because without a dream, it ain't getting there. Without a vision, it can't take form. Without a purpose, it's not serving anything. And without a mission, there will be no system there. So the dreamer has a dream, the thinker has a vision, the storyteller has a purpose, and the leader has a mission. That's the platform. So the very first thing we say to a prospective entrepreneur, a new entrepreneur, an awakening entrepreneur, a small business owner, or someone who wants to start a small business, is first of all, we have to discover your dream, then your vision, then your purpose, and then your mission. So let me define for you what those are so that you and your audience can actually lay them out before you and see the logic of them. Because Nathan, if what we do and understand with over 100,000 clients over the years, what we do has to work, meaning it has to produce a positive impact. Otherwise, there's no point. We talked about the business development process of innovation, quantification, and orchestration. Innovation, reinventing what you do to improve it. Quantification, measuring the outcome of that innovation to make certain it is an improvement, because if it isn't, it's just change for change's sake. 
And finally, orchestration, that means documenting that change, that improvement to become an operating system. Because in the absence of an operating system in any company, all you have is a random exercise. You can have six people selling whatever you, you, you do, and every single one of them sells it different. You could have six people doing what you sell, and every single one of them does it different, my way, his way, her way, their way. And in fact, that's exactly the opposite of what must exist for a emerging enterprise to truly do what it's set up to do, which is to scale, meaning Hamburger stand number one, hamburger stand number two, hamburger stand number three, salesperson number one, salesperson number two, salesperson number three, chiropractor number one, chiropractor number two, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Meaning it's got to be replicable. It's got to be scalable. And the only way you can do that is with a system. So you ask, how do we apply it? So the first thing is I have a dream, I have a vision, I have a purpose, I have a mission. I'm saying every single small company must have a dream, a vision, a purpose, and a mission. You can't get anywhere without it. You can't sustain any energy, the energy you're going to need to go through the hierarchy of growth, as we call it, from a company of one to a company of 1,000. Can't do it without a dream, a vision, a purpose, and a mission. And each of them have their distinct purpose, and it's a process, not just four different things. It's a process. First, the dream. Second, the vision. Third, the purpose. Fourth, the mission. So I'm saying every single one of the people listening to us right now needs a dream, a vision, a purpose, and a mission. Just no, absolutely no way around it. And they don't have one. And if they do, I will absolutely assure you the dream and the vision and the purpose and the mission are incongruent, meaning they don't fit. And because they don't fit, they'll never work. And so what most of us don't understand is how we think at 10,000 feet determines what we do at one. And that was the brilliance of Ray Kroc who started out his first store at the age of 52. Can you believe that? So much for you got to be young. No, you just got to think differently. And so your audience, all of the folks you're speaking to, that we're speaking to right now, I'm telling them the good news, the absolutely spectacularly good news that there's a way to do this. Not the best coach, not the best mentor, not the best facilitator, not the best guy, not the best lady, not the best this and best. There's a way to do this. And that way is available to every single solitary soul on the face of the planet. And there's a logic tree to it. Step one, step two, step three, step four. So once you get your platform built, your foundation built, my dream, my vision, my purpose, my mission, not personal dream, but impersonal dream. My dream isn't about me. My dream is about them. Who? In my case, every small business owner on the face of this planet. Because if what we said earlier is true, they're broken, they don't work, they fail, then we have the greatest opportunity imaginable. Because we can invent a system that alters all that. And that's what we've done. And that's what we're continuing to do. 
I love it. And I'm looking forward to picking up a copy myself. Um, look, I have a couple more questions, Michael. This has been fantastic. Um, I could talk to you all day, but <laughs> I'm mindful of your time. A um, couple of questions and we have to work towards wrapping up. You talk about that a company's purpose eventually is to be sold. How do you know when it's ready to be sold? And what are some things that you can do to achieve the highest multiple? Well, first of all, you know when it can be sold because you know what the market is saying to you. When a company is ready to be sold or not ready to be sold, you know you're doing something when people begin to walk in and say, I'd love to buy your company, or I'd like to have one like yours in Pittsburgh, or I'd like to open one up in San Mateo. You, 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 you know it. The, the, the consumer is telling you, your people are telling you, your results are telling you, your accountant is telling you, your CFO is telling you, everybody's telling you, wow, wow, wow. You know it's ready. You know it's ready to be sold. Whether or not you're ready to sell it is a different story. How do you increase the return on your investment? Is by doing what I'm saying needs to be done with just extreme, extreme determination. In short, when I say turnkey, you've got to accept it in its fullest sense of the word. Turnkey means literally turnkey. Look, I opened the second one, the third one, the fourth one, the fifth one, the tenth one, the ninetieth one, whatever, whatever, and each of them can operate in identically the same manner because they do what they do with precision. That method, that mindset is critical to it. And that's at the core of the return on your investment. Because when you've created a company that has the power to do that, to scale at will, then all it requires is capital. You understand? All it requires is an infusion of growth capital to open up the third, the 10th, the 50th, the 10,000th. But what you know is you know how to manage it. What you know is you know how to lead it. What you know is that it knows how to do what it's become famous for doing. Mm. Yeah, no, you put it, you put it brilliantly. Um, so look, I'm, I have one last question, and that is around personal branding. If you have a strong personal brand, do you think that you have to be careful because that can tie the, I guess, uh, the value generation system that you have within your business to, for, to potentially be sold? <laughs> well, let, let me put it in a different way. I'm saying, first of all, personal branding is nonsense. And I say personal <laughs> branding is nonsense simply because no entrepreneur sets out to create a personal brand ever. Only technicians do. Mm. Because the technician is selling himself. The entrepreneur is selling his company. So no entrepreneur sets out to create a, a personal brand. Now, they will simply by the fact that they're really good at what they do. So Steve Jobs obviously had a personal brand, but nobody bought Steve Jobs. Nobody went to the store and said, I'd like some more jobs, please. <laughs> right? I mean, it's the dumbest idea in the world. I mean, why, why would he do that? No, instead he created the wealthiest company in the world. 
instead of creating a personal brand, he created the wealthiest company in the world. Why? Because the sucker works doing what? Doing what he set out to do. It works. He doesn't. Now, of course, he works as the leader of that enterprise. You understand? As the leader of that enterprise. Steve Jobs is the least likely guy to become Steve Jobs. He dropped out of college in his first year. He went on a spiritual search to India and dropped out of that in a half a minute. Came home and got a job in technology, and he was a disaster at it. And he went to his father's garage to open his company. Never had any experience in business. Never succeeded at anything. So then what? Well, I've just shared with you, then what? So personal branding is a silly thing. Personal branding is something that coaches create to sell to people who need a personal brand. Because they got a job, doing it, doing it, doing it, doing it. Busy, 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 busy. And they're selling themselves. Buy me. Don't buy them. Buy me. Don't buy him. You follow me? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, buy me, buy me, buy me, buy me. That whole bullshit conversation is such a tragedy because in reality, very few people ever develop a personal brand, albeit they've spent a fortune on being coached in the how-to. But in fact, it's absolutely the opposite of what they should be doing. They should be freaking invisible. So all of this is counterintuitive, Nathan. Mm. But it's so exciting. And it's so exciting, just as I said, because everybody can do it. It doesn't mean that your dream is going to be my dream, is going to be his dream, is going to be their dream. It doesn't make any difference. Your dream could be exactly what my dream is. Your vision could be identical to mine. Your purpose, identical. Your mission, identical. But when we're both done, they'll be different. Unless you stole mine. Do you understand? Yeah, 100%. And they'll be different because we'll have seen them differently, applied them differently, tested them differently, quantified them differently, documented them differently. And what a joy to behold. When companies are working at that level, Nathan, all the guys who are listening to us right now, every single one of you listening to us right now, when we're working in that world, it's a completely different planet. That's what moves me. So when I use the word transform the state of small business worldwide, I mean literally transform it because it's a completely different universe when we're operating that way. Just as Apple is in a completely different universe than every company in the face of this earth. And Google is in a completely different universe than every single person listening to us right now. It's not they're in business, they're in business. No, it's not they're in business, they're in business. Google isn't in business in the way that Jerry is. And Jerry isn't in business the way Google is. Jerry's simply doing it, 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 doing it. Goes to work every day, goes to work every day, goes to work every day, goes to work every day and says, I'm a solopreneur. And I'm saying, bullshit, Jerry. You're just confused. Please let me clarify it for you. Let's just spend this little time together so that I can hopefully alter the way you see it. And if I can alter the way you see it, everything changes. All right. Lastly, guys, this is a conversation that I had with Matthew Kimberly. Matthew and I 
actually met at a conference a few years ago and really hit it off. And we're actually still friends to this day. And uh, with Matthew, we really delve into the fact that sales is the lifeblood of your business. And if you can't sell your product or your service, you're in a bit of trouble. And that's why I asked Matthew to come on because he's got a really interesting framework and it's really, really solid as well. A little different to Ben's, but it's really great to hear a different perspective on sales. So now let's jump in. Let's switch gears. Can you sell without being slimy? Absolutely. Categorically, yes, you can. And I think the proof, Nathan, uh, is that you buy stuff, right? Probably on a daily basis, as do all of us. The people who are listening to this buy stuff on a daily basis. And how many times do they come away from that feeling? Yeah, I've got to take a shower or I've got to have a steam wash or, or I've got to be de-slimed. Almost never. To the point that when it does happen, it really sticks in our brain. Why? Because it's an irregular occurrence. So if us as consumers don't feel like we're covered in ectoplasm after entering into a buyer-purchaser relationship, why is it that so many salespeople have got this hang-up that the minute they encounter a prospect, they're going to cover them in ectoplasm? Why? I, I don't know. Why, why is that? Yeah. Yeah, why is that? Um, that's what I'd like to know. You know, we... we um, when we have a, a negative experience with a salesperson, then that sticks in the sticks in the croix. It remains stuck in our brain as being an example of what we don't want to do. And so we start to compensate. We overcompensate for not being slimy by either never making a sales offer or by making a weak sales offer just because we don't want to be that slime ball who wants um, who wants pissed us off or, you know, the kind of traditional car salesman that goes down in folklore and is, is on every um every tv show there's always a, a a dodgy ambulance chasing lawyer or a slimy salesperson or a, an ethical train crash of a financial services provider they make good tv baddies they make good tv baddies so we overcompensate for that and say um sales equals slime therefore in order to not be slimy i'm going to not make sales offers and this is problematic so I think the people, the people who very rarely come across or who, who have the least, pro let me say, rephrase that the people, the salespeople who most, who, who most rarely experience the, am I a slime, slimy salesperson doubt are the people who are, are confident about the, the value of their product. I think if you have, and I think it genuinely is a confidence issue. If you are not sure that your product or service is for the person who's in front of you, you're going to have to go out of kilter with you, what you believe is best for the person in front of you or the humanity, the empathy side of things by delivering them something that they don't want or need, right? So if you're a person who, because you don't believe that they want or need your product, if you don't believe that they will want or need your product, then you will have uh, an ethical quandary providing that you experience, you know, some, some form of sensitivity towards other people, right? You're not full psychopath. So, if you're not sure, and this comes with experience as well, you know, it's easier to sell something that's worked for a dozen other people. It's easier to sell a widget that you use yourself. It's, if you wouldn't sell it to your grandmother, if your grandmother was in your target market, you shouldn't be selling it to the person in front of you, right? If you doubt your ability to provide that service, then you've got to be um, upfront about that doubt and even upfront about that doubt with your, with your prospect if necessary. But I still think you can follow a systematic process, even if you're not 100% certain, in order to um, allow that person to make a decision 
right? Sales is not forcing somebody to do something. Sales is encouraging somebody to make an appropriate decision for themselves within a time frame that suits both of you. Interesting. So when it comes to selling, professional persuasion, where's the first place people can start? You know, you, you talk about a system. What, what, what does your sales process look like? Can you take us through it? Absolutely right. Yeah. So in, in order to sell, you can either leave it up to the prospect. So you can say, right here, here I'm going to stick up a sign that says you can buy my widget here. And if people are interested in a widget, they'll find out about it. And some marketing, you can say, look, widgets for sale. And people can come and have a look at your widget and you stand there with an order book and those who are ready to buy, buy, right? Or you can make it more likely that they buy, more likely that they have all the information they need by following a system for selling. And many large organizations have these systems in place. They're called pipelines. They're called um, you know, sales processes. They're called funnels. They're called uh, launches, right, where you make sure that you hit all the likely buttons that people have the information that they need in order to, and to build up some excitement and, and to give them an incentive to do it now instead of later, which is better for everybody if you believe that they should have it now rather than later. So, Or you can leave it up to chance and too many people particularly the solo operators that i tend to work with leave it up to chance so instead of leaving it up to chance you can lead them through the the stages of the pipeline the 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 steps of the funnel the process and what i've done over the last 15 years or so since i've been studying this stuff is take all of the individual elements and piece them together in some kind of order which makes sense to me and that is my professional persuasion program it begins with the qualification phase. So who is the person you're talking to? Um, and who are you They you qualify themselves, and then you qualify yourself as the vendor of choice, then you enter the clarification phase. The clarification phase is when you actually let them know what they're getting, um, what it is, how it works, what the knobs are for, how to turn it on, um, whether or not it's for them, if other people are using it, if it's appropriate, um, you know, stuff like that. Then you then you once they know what they're getting, then you can start to quantify that with prices and sales conditions. So you say, now you've seen what you're going to get. Um, let's quantify what that means for you in monetary terms today. Um, and then you close. Right. Um, and those are the four big, big picture steps. So the qualification stage is absolutely critical. And, and I don't need to talk to you or your audience, I believe, about the importance of a niche, the importance of a target market, the importance of of making sure that the person in front of you has the financial means or access to the financial means in order to become a customer. You, I don't need to tell your audience, Nathan, that if you want to sell hot dogs, um, don't sell them to people who are walking out of a restaurant. Right, is it? It's kind of the basis of qualification. Is this person? Um, is this, does this person have the emotional drive? Do they have the financial capability? Do they have the situational need? You know, do they need it today? Um, and then the the last part, which is often neglected, but which I learned from my mentor Michael Port, is do they belong in my world? You know, do I want them? Maybe if you're selling a widget, it doesn't matter. But if you're selling a service, do you want to work with this person? Do they pass your red velvet rope policy or do they fail the douchebag test? So that's important as well. There's got to be a good a good deal of, of qualification. The more you work on qualification up front, the less. And this is after your marketing has done its job of bringing people to your front door, right? Um, then you qualify these people. Are you allowed in? Do you belong here? Is it appropriate for you? If you do that hard work and really hard, um, another one of my mentors, Taki Moore, has a, has a process called application selling. It's like if people want to work with you, they have to fill in an application. That's great qualification. 
right? Because they're filling in the application themselves. You're not saying, come on, come on, come on, come on. Come in, come in, come in. That makes you a needy salesperson. That's unattractive. That that shifts the balance of power to the buyer where they're dangling the, the carrot and you, the salesperson, are trying to drag it. Grab it. It should be exactly the opposite way around. It's like, I've got something for you. And if you're lucky, you can have it. Oh, and not just lucky, but you've got to qualify. When you go to the doctor, the doctor doesn't say, choose me, choose me, choose me. He's like, you know, you have a, a Veruca on your foot. But I'm the, definitely the person to do it. Let me show you all the Verucas that I've cured in the past. No, he just goes, of course, I've got the answer. And if you give me enough money, I'll help you. You know, that's the way I think that, that we should be approaching things. That's, that's the mindset shift. Instead of putting a prospect on a pedestal and kissing their feet, you say, I am the prize. And if you qualify, you can get a piece of me. All right. That's difficult for a lot of people. And that, that's, why, that's why people fear being slimy, I think, because they don't see themselves as the prize. And when it comes to qualification, do you think um, someone buying, like what are your thoughts on the Ascension model, you know, having um, a series of products, like, you know, throughout the sales process or in the funnel, having some sort of level entry product or service or, or something to qualify them? So, you know, have to pay a nominal fee to be somewhere or, you know, have to pay a nominal fee to, to fill out the application or a deposit or what are your thoughts on those kinds of things as in terms of qualification? Yeah, I think it's absolutely critical. And you'll know, Nathan, as I know, and any other person who's sold more than one thing in their past, that your best customers are your existing customers. Anybody who is a happy customer who has already spent money with you and has got what they wanted will be more inclined to spend money with you again because the element of risk has almost been annihilated. There is no risk if you're going back in. Well, there's always some some element of risk, but it's much less. You know, I've just launched um, a, a coaching program. Nathan and I have asked everybody who's come through, I've said, why did you join? And a lot of them have said, well, because it's you and you never fail to deliver. And that's fine, right? I didn't even know, like somebody, one person said, I didn't even know what it was, but, um, you know, you've never let me down in the past, so let's see what you've got. I generally need it, right? That's the great. So that's, yeah, so the essential model, can you, can, yeah, people commit. Commitment creates commitment. Commitment creates commitment. And, and people commit different things, right? You can commit money, but you can also commit time or energy or attention to something as well. Like one of the famous... Um, ah, the qualification test. I'm trying to think of the name of the the guy who told me about it. I can't now. It's like you know, all these kids are sitting an exam, right? Yeah. Pass the exam, you need to get 100. percent And the first instruction is read through read through the entire paper um, before you answer any questions, right? And and then the first one is point number one: take out a pencil and write X at the top of the, this paper. Good. Point number two: um, stand up and shout, "Hi, I am here." And, you know, people around the class are doing that. So step number three, um, do five push-ups. And these people say, yeah, this is easy. I'm easily going to get 100%. And then you get down to, like, question number 20, and it says, thank you for reading to the end of the paper. Do not do any of these questions. Hand in a blank paper. Right? <laughs> so, so that's a great qualifier. That's a great qualifier. It's like you see, um, uh, do you see, what, you see why that's a qualification. You're getting people to... You know, if you don't do what's expected of you in question number one, the chances are you're not going to pass the test. It's the same with interview applications. You, we see this a lot when you're hiring a VA. I've seen a lot of recommendation would be, you know, please, please follow the application rules to a letter, to a T. So I'm looking for somebody who's going to create, let's say, 
I don't know, curate my Instagram feed. I'm looking for somebody who's going to run my Instagram feed. If you think this is you, please submit an application of no more than 100 words and tell me what your favorite color is. Right. And the minute you receive an application, which is of 5000 words and they don't mention their favorite color, you know that this person doesn't qualify to work on your team. They have disqualified themselves by not answering the right questions. So when it comes to the Ascension model, people can invest their time. You can ask them to read, you know, read this before you show up. Or um, I have a friend who, who introduced me to action based coaching where I, I used to have a problem when I was a coach. I used to do a lot more coaching than I do now. But problem was I'd sit down with people and I'd go, right, so here's what we agree that you'll do before the next session. You'll go out and you'll have 10 sales conversations. Then you'll report to me when you get back, right? Good. Okay, so let's fix our next meeting for Wednesday next week. And they'd come back Wednesday next week and I'd say, so how many of those sales conversations did you have? And they'd say, well, you know, I didn't have any because the cat was sick or, you know, I had an existential crisis or something like that. And we'd end up having a therapy session. I wasn't good at this. So I said, I need a better quality of client who, who qualifies themselves up front. And um, I think it, it might have been James Shamko, actually. I, I don't remember. And it, it could well have been. He's like, well, well, why not try something else? Why not qualify them for every single call? Which is, okay, here's what you need to do. At the end of our session, you agree to go away, have 10 sales conversations and try this approach. Yes, good. When you've done that, send me the report and we'll schedule our next call. But you can't have your next call until you've done that. Right. So that's an ascension model. You can ascend to the next call if you have followed through. I think it's very important to allow people to make investments. And this this comes directly from Michael Port, who I worked with for uh, six years at Put Yourself Solid. It's directly his quotes, not mine, but it's stuck with me. People will make investments that are directly proportionate to the amount of trust that you have earned. Right. So if you're asking somebody to invest five thousand dollars and they've never met you before, then that might be asking too much. If you're asking them to invest 15 minutes to watch a video or to fill in an application form, that might feel right for them. And here's the thing, trust develops at different time for different people. So I stand up on stage, I give a keynote of 45 minutes to a crowd of people who've never met me before. One person comes up to me and says, I want you to be my private coach. And I say, that's 30 grand a year. And they say, um, yes or no. But some of them say yes. Some of them say, okay, that's great. No problem. And I say, well, but you've only known me for 45 minutes. How do you know it's right? And they go, I just know. We haven't even had a conversation, right? So it took 45 minutes for $30,000 worth of trust to be developed, right? Then I'd been running a mailing list for probably five or six years as well. I'll have somebody write to me maybe once a month and say, hey, Matthew, I've been reading your emails for the last five years. Just want to let you know, really appreciate everything you do. And I just bought your book. My book is 99 cents or 3.99 or something on Amazon, right? So it took five years for $3 worth of trust to be developed. So the essential model is important, yes, but I don't want to stick everybody into a funnel. Like if someone walks up to me and says, I loved your talk, I want you to be my coach. And I say, wait, 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 wait. That's great. But first, have you taken my <laughs> have you taken my survey and bought my $99 course? I'm not going to say that. That'd be crazy. So yeah, I think the essential model is important, but I think we should consider it to be a, you can enter at any point, right? It's a carousel. It's a sales cycle by Michael Port says, rather than a, um, you must ascend from $1. If you're ready to jump to the $30,000 off, of, off the bat, then you should do that. All right. Thank you so much, guys, for listening today. I really, really hope that you guys loved listening to this episode as much as we loved going back on the archives and putting these episodes together. Really hoping you're enjoying this mix-up of this series. 
Uh, and please do let us know. We'd love to hear from you and what you're thinking. And if you are enjoying these mix-ups, uh, that's it from me. Hope you have a great day wherever you are around the world. Thank you so much. I'll speak to you soon. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.